Hello, my super scary listeners, and welcome back to the Super Scary Podcast. It's your host, Josh. Thank you so much for joining me today. And it's just you and me on the podcast today. I'm running it solo to talk about the 2005 film White Noise, starring Michael Keaton. This film was released on the second weekend of January in 2005 and was directed by Jeffrey Sachs. This was his first feature film. Uh, Prior to this, he was most well-known for uh, some TV and film in the UK, but uh, he also made a made-for-TV movie adaptation of Doctor Who. Uh, This movie did not garner great reviews when it came out. Um, It actually has a 7% on the tomato meter on Rotten Tomatoes, and the audience score was 31%. This was rated PG-13. It's more of a supernatural thriller, but it does have some horror elements in it. Uh, This had a budget of $10 And I can only assume that most of it went to paying Michael Keaton to be in this movie. Um, He is probably the most well-known actor uh, from this movie, from this lineup. Um, Some of the other people I do kind of recognize from other projects in that era. Uh, But Michael Keaton was definitely the most well-known. So we had good old... Uh, former Batman in this movie Um, and to be honest without him in it I you know honestly I don't know who else would have done this role but uh, Michael Keaton definitely you know keeps you engaged throughout the movie so thank goodness he was in it right this movie actually has a sequel uh, and it came out in 2007 It did not do great in the box office. It was only released internationally, but it garnered better reviews than the original. So maybe that's something we can put on the list to uh, check out at a later date. So the interesting thing about this movie is that it was released the weekend after New Year's. And usually winter months are terrible for movies (laughs) historically, Uh, at least, you know, up until this point. But... The kind of lasting effect of white noise is that in its first weekend, it made $24 million in the box office, and it's actually ranked 64th in the biggest domestic January weekend box office. Um, so, I mean, it's it garnered a lot of money. So, you know, it actually did pretty well, despite having very terrible critic reviews (laughs) because it did so well studios were like oh we can kind of capitalize on this and release better movies in january uh to kind of entice you know moviegoers to go during that time so uh most notably right after this uh cloverfield was released in january of 2008 i believe uh so that movie um you know had great success and most recently uh scream had a january debut so you know this lasting effect of doing well in the box office 
in January is thanks to white noise. So domestic earnings for white noise was 56 million with international earnings uh, coming to 36. So it made about 92 million. And with a budget of 10 million, that's that's great for for the uh, studios to, you know, kind of make back their money. And <laughs> I mean, you know, the budget of 10 million did not uh, go to the special effects or to the green screens because <laughs> you it's uh, I know that early 2000s kind of have this issue with their movies that the special effects were just not great. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you can kind of tell with the spirits flying around, you know, toward the end, it's not, it's not a great effect. <laughs> um, but uh, for the most part, I feel like the movie holds up, you know. And Michael Keaton, again, I think does a great job in this movie. In kind of my opening thoughts on this, I don't know why it got, you know, basically shit on so badly by the critics and the audience. My husband actually introduced me to this movie. He claimed that we had watched it a few years back, uh, but I don't really remember watching it if we did. Uh, So, you know, I feel that this was my first time actually watching it. I think the movie is is pretty good. You know, it does have a few kind of weird plot points that probably could have been better with, you know, better writing and kind of clean it up a little bit. But I think overall this movie is is pretty good. I would watch it again. So, so let's get into kind of the concept of the movie. So basically it deals with a lot of paranormal aspects and one of those key points is electronic voice phenomena or EPV. So the best way that I can define it based on my very uh, limited knowledge is that it's uh, noises and sounds that can be heard on static or like white noise recordings that you know some could interpret as voices from spirits. And actually, we watched the movie on uh, on DVD, <laughs> uh, which uh, which was kind of funny because, you know, DVDs, you know, the the framing of the movie is a little bit different than if you were to watch it on streaming, and you know, you can definitely tell it's from two thousand five. <laughs> Uh, especially with the the commercials in the beginning it's uh it's it was really funny but uh it's the first time i've actually watched something on dvd in a very long time um and i i thought that white noise was on netflix or you know another streaming service right now but it surprisingly wasn't um so luckily we had it on dvd and yeah, again, it was it was a very interesting watch, and you know, luckily with the the DVD, you get bonus features. So there was some um, pretty interesting EPV and paranormal uh, bonus features to kind of watch these experts talk about it and 
see them study these sounds and kind of go into these uh, places that have what they claim to have high paranormal activity. So um, sometimes I like watching stuff like that. I don't know if I necessarily believe it, um, but I don't knock anybody who does. So if you're into that, I, I would definitely check out this movie and definitely um, kind of do your own research of EPV. Um, but yeah, so this movie specifically touches on aspects of EPV in their own way um, by using both static from recording devices as well as TV static. And with the TV static, our main character um, can see spirits and faces in the TV static. So it's kind of expanding on that a little bit. Um, Because in my kind of limited research of EPV, it's more so focused on the sounds, not necessarily like TV static and seeing all of that. Okay, so let's now, with all that out of the way, um, let's go ahead and get into our plot summary. So, so the movie, interestingly enough, opens up with a Thomas Edison quote. So it says, Nobody knows whether our personalities pass on to another existence or sphere, but if we can evolve an instrument so delicate to be manipulated by our personality as it survives in the next life, such an instrument ought to record something. So, So again, in my very limited research prior to recording this podcast, I was very interested in why there there was this quote from Thomas Edison, and kind of when you watch it, you're like, oh, Thomas Edison believed in the supernatural, like, he was, you know, working on something to try to record this, but this quote is paraphrased and actually has the date wrong from when he, uh, you know, had this interview and this quote. So, this is actually from a 1920 interview in the Scientific American with B.C. Forbes, who is actually, fun fact, the founder of Forbes magazine. And the title is Edison Working on How to Communicate with the Next World. So, essentially, it does paraphrase and condense (laughs) heavily this uh, quote from Edison, but basically it kind of alludes to Edison potentially creating something that could pick up, you know, uh, communication from the other side. But again, in my research for this podcast, I came across a New York Times, uh, a 1926 New York Times interview where Edison claimed that this interview with Forbes was just a prank. So he said something along the lines of, I really had nothing to tell him. I hated to disappoint him. So I thought up this story about communicating with spirits, but it was all a joke. So there's been speculation and it seems like there's quite a bit of research on this of whether or not Edison actually believed in the supernatural or you know was actually working on something 
that's, you know, obviously why they use this to kind of open up the the movie with, you know, such a, you know, dramatic quote from Thomas Edison <laughs> that is very um, poorly paraphrased and poorly researched because they got the date wrong. So, <laughs> and they, they make it, I, and I don't know if that's on purpose, but it's made to seem as though he believed in, you know, the use of EPB to kind of communicate with spirits. So, you know, I digress. So, so after our poorly edited Thomas Edison quote, we open up to this uh, beautiful house on, um, I'm assuming, a lake, and it's owned by architect Jonathan Rivers, uh, which is funny because his last name is Rivers, and he's living on, you know, the water, get it? Um, <laughs> and he, he lives with his wife, Anna, and uh, his son as well. So, Anna is an author. She just got a, you know, new book cover that's awesome for her. And she is taking, uh, taking their son to Jonathan's ex-wife's house to, to stay for what I assume the weekend or, you know, they, you know, have their own visitation scheduled. It's not very clear. Uh, <laughs> So it seems as though Anna and the ex-wife have a pretty good relationship, and Anna calls Jonathan on their landline. You know, kids there before cell phones, uh, you know, there were these things called landline phones, and in the early 2000s, you had both a home phone and a cell phone. <laughs> so um, we see a little bit of that in this movie, where there is a landline phone, that Jonathan is receiving voicemails on, but he also has a flip phone. So it's very much, you know, you know what time it is. <laughs> so anyway, Anna leaves a message for Jonathan saying that she's running late, she'll be home late, uh, because she's going out for drinks with Jonathan's ex-wife, I think. Um, that wasn't necessarily clear, but it seemed to indicate that she was going out for drinks with her, which is confusing to me because why wouldn't the ex-wife had called Jonathan back? Because I believe over the course of that night, he had made calls to Anna and to his ex-wife, but I digress. So anyway, we find out in the morning that Anna is missing. And a couple weeks go by, and they discover that um, her car, you know, it seemed like someone had slashed her tire, she was trying to fix it, and then she had fallen on these rocks by the water, and then the water kind of swept her body upstream. So they end up finding her body a few weeks later, and... You know, Jonathan is a wreck, as you would be, um, having your wife unexpectedly, you know, passing. So, you know, he's trying to go through the motions of grief. And one morning he is followed by this weird guy in a green truck. And... <laughs> He sees the guy outside of his work kind of creepily staring at him. This was like 
a very weird, like, why wouldn't you just, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what I would do in this situation. I probably wouldn't go up and talk to the guy. I'd probably just call the police and be like, hey, this man is following me. It's a, it's a little weird. But anyway, this guy, Raymond, uh, reveals that he has been receiving messages from Anna through the electronic voice phenomenon and says that he wants to share those with Jonathan. And it's a little weird to me. It didn't seem to indicate that Anna was this popular writer, but I mean, I guess her death was all over the news, kind of, you know, local news, I assume, would, you know, kind of beat the story to death for weeks in a row. So I'm sure Raymond recognized that, but you know, they were very much in the news being like, oh, this this author, this best-selling author, Anna. So it, it seemed to indicate that, like, Anna is this well-known author, and Jonathan Rivers is a well-known architect. So seemed to be a very powerful couple. So naturally, Jonathan is very dismissive. He's very angry, um, as I would be if someone weird was following me and saying, hey, I got messages from your from your wife. Um, so later that evening is when he learns that his wife's actually has actually passed, unfortunately, and not uh, kind of missing at large, if you will. Um, so he begins to be open to the fact that these EPVs might be Anna. So he goes over to Raymond's house and hears her voice and kind of like, this is a point where he's become obsessed with EPV and just wants to try contacting her all the time. Uh, so he actually goes to a psychic, which they, they don't really kind of explain why Jonathan goes to a psychic or how he knows this person, how he found her. Um, I know it's a very minor plot point, but the way the psychic kind of indicates that this is not a good route for him to take, it's, it seemed like the psychic would have had a bigger presence throughout the rest of the story to kind of warn him or, you know, help him. I don't know. Whatever. But it's kind of funny that they have this scene with the psychic because the only kind of thing that we learn from it is this weird connection with Jonathan with uh, the Willow Avenue aspect later. Because otherwise, you know, there really is no reason why he would have had to go see a psychic like she's she is the only way he knows about Willow Avenue later so I guess she was just a plot device to kind of let him know that I don't know it, it was just a very weird scene otherwise to me but I digress but the psychic basically warns him like hey don't be messing with EPVs like you know not all spirits that contact through this are uh, nice people, basically. 
Um, so when Jonathan goes back to Raymond's uh, house, uh, he ends up meeting a woman named Sarah, who also comes to Raymond uh, for EPVs because she had a fiance that also passed away. And I thought that they were going to have this kind of love connection between Jonathan and Sarah uh, when I first watched this, but I'm kind of happy they didn't go that route, that they were just, you know, friends trying to figure this out together. <laughs> Sarah seems to indicate that it takes a while for people to receive EPVs from, you know, their loved ones. Um, but it seems like Jonathan almost receives them immediately after uh, Anna's death. So it's kind of, I mean, I know that if it were that case, it would be a very long movie. So, <laughs> so I'm sure it was just a way to kind of move the story along. But again, it, minor details I'm pointing out here. But so anyway, uh, Raymond, the EPV expert, is actually found dead. Um, and it seems that these three demons that we keep seeing, you know, in the background, they're, they're, they haven't really made their presence known necessarily. Like, there are some, you know, kind of threatening messages that Raymond has received, uh, we found later, um, whenever Jonathan is going through all of Raymond's, you know, kind of backlogs. Um, it seems that he's received EPVs from these demons throughout the years. So then Jonathan and Sarah team up. They've been kind of looking through uh, Raymond's stuff to kind of figure out how he died and who could be targeting him. But it's not very clear. Meanwhile, Jonathan has So meanwhile, in the midst of this, Jonathan has moved from his house into this kind of industrial apartment in the city, it seems like. Um, this apartment is also very kind of bougie looking, <laughs> just like his house was. But I do not like this apartment at all. It's very... It almost seems very, like, cinderblocky. It's very, like, not like a prison, but it just is not very colorful. I know he's going through mourning, so he's probably just, you know, not looking for that. But his windows are giant. Like, they're, like, from floor to ceiling, and it's a very, like, open concept. So it's a very big window. There's, like four big windows in the front and I'm like you're just asking for somebody to, to smash those windows and as we find later on in the movie uh, somebody has kind of smashed his apartment to smithereens <laughs> so anyway after Raymond's death Jonathan takes some of Raymond's equipment and is just very obsessed with EPVs and really trying to connect with um, with Anna, his wife, that passed. So here is another, yet another, <laughs> um, 
I, I must have a bad parenting radar on me <laughs> recently that I've just been finding all of these examples of bad parents. So I can kind of excuse this one because Jonathan is obviously going through mourning, but he's kind of ignoring his kid to try to, you know, he's his obsession with EPV is very much taking over his life. So that in and of itself is making him ignore his child. <laughs> and you can kind of see it in his ex's face. Like it seems like every two seconds we're seeing the son being picked up by the ex-wife. And Jonathan's just like, oh, I just need the weekend. I need a couple weeks. Like, so he just becomes consumed by his obsession with EPV, so, and, and you can tell, <laughs> because, uh, of all the takeout boxes, <laughs> that seems to be a trope of the early 2000s, kind of like, you know, someone's, you know, obsessed, or, you know, tired, or they don't want to cook, they just, you know, have all these boxes of takeout everywhere, um, kind of showing that time progression you just see all the boxes everywhere of Chinese it's it's funny to watch so um, an aspect uh, like I said at the beginning of the episode of this EPV is you know he's watching the television and just watching the static and just trying to uh, receive kind of a video message in a way from from his wife. So Jonathan starts receiving these EPV messages from people who have not yet passed away. And he figures out that he can kind of save these people. So this first one is the Willow Avenue connection that he received from the psychic somehow. But uh, there's a woman trapped in a car, essentially. And uh, the woman has a child in the back seat. It's a baby. So he's, you know, basically pulls the baby out of the car, but is not able to save the woman in time. And Jonathan and Sarah actually attend the funeral for the woman. And Jonathan approaches the husband. And he tries to tell the husband, hey, like, this is how I figured it out. I figured it out through EPV. And, you know, you might be able to contact your wife that way, just like I did with my wife. And the husband is not happy about that. <laughs> and I probably wouldn't have approached him on the funeral day because, you know, emotions are running high. And I'm sure the last thing the husband wants to hear is, hey, you can contact your wife through um, potential paranormal connections. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think I would, I don't think I would like that either. So uh, the husband actually says, stay the fuck away from me, stay the fuck away from my family, or something like that, and it's a PG-13 movie, and from what I understand, it's on, you get only uh, one use of the word fuck for it to kind of uh, pass the the rating, <laughs> so I, I said to my husband, well, they got their, 
They certainly use their their one use of the word fuck in a very effective way, so. <laughs> so shortly after this, uh, Jonathan receives um, some images and kind of EPV messages uh, from a missing woman named Mary. Um, and you kind of see the progression of this on TVs in the background, like the news um, is covering it a lot, kind of like how they did with Anna's story. You know, they're trying to find this missing woman. And so with his EPV messages, and he's also looking through all of Raymond's backlogs, and he ends up finding that uh, Mary and this other woman that was trapped in the car were actually connected to Raymond. They actually went to him uh, to get their own messages of EPV, which makes sense that the husband was not necessarily open (laughs) to this. And then later that evening, it seems that Sarah also gets possessed by these kind of demonic entities that are kind of following Jonathan around. Um, she gets possessed and they try to, you know, trigger warning, she, um, kind of jumps off a balcony, but thankfully she survives the fall, um, but she is kind of in critical condition and kind of out of commission for the rest of the movie, so, so based on the imagery given to Jonathan through these EPVs and kind of the messages that Anna is sending. Um, We hear her throughout the movie say, John, go now, go now. And he interprets it as going to save these women that he's getting the messages for, which it could be interpreted as that. But as I kind of predicted uh, in my own watch, I was thinking this is going to kind of lead to the end where she kind of appears in front of him and basically says, John, get out of here. Go now. Don't stay. (laughs) Um, But he actually ends up going to the site of Anna's death and finds similar imagery to what he saw in his EPV and is able to find uh, the missing woman, Mary. So Jonathan calls the police and he's kind of exploring this warehouse and he finds a set of computers, electronic equipment, TVs, and it seems like a very similar setup to what he has in his home for the EPVs. So this is when we find out that a construction worker from Jonathan's company has also been doing his own kind of EPV research and the the, the three demons that's been kind of attracted to John's obsession with EPV are the ones that influenced him to kidnap Mary and we f- kind of get the exposition dump that he is also the one who killed uh, the woman with the baby in the car, and he also killed Anna, apparently. But it's not really explained, though, why this construction worker from his company is specifically targeting these 
people. It's not really explained why. And it seems weird that the killer has a connection to his company. Like, I didn't really understand that. I don't understand why they went that route. I would have just... I don't know what I would have done to fix this. <laughs> it's it's just kind of a weird plot point that I don't think really needed to be there. Um, because it kind of gives the assumption that this man did it to kind of get at Jonathan or get or the demons wanted Jonathan this entire time prior to his work with the EPB devices. It seems very it seems a little muddy, a little little convoluted, little confusing, if you will. So Jonathan tries to save Mary and try to stop this construction worker guy who has now been revealed to be possessed by these demons um but the three demons come out of nowhere and you know basically torture john to the point of breaking his arms and legs and kind of push him uh uh to his death (laughs) which is very unfortunate um because i was rooting for michael keaton to win in the end (laughs) but unfortunately you know, he falls to his death, and, you know, the SWAT team is uh, just so close to saving him and just did not get there in time, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, fortunately, they're able to save Mary, and they killed the construction worker guy. So, the end of the movie, we see Jonathan's funeral, and I can't help but feel bad for his son. Like, <laughs> you know, and like I said, you know, he kind of ignored his son a lot <laughs> during the last, like, couple months, I guess, of his life. So I can only imagine what the son's feeling. But thankfully, uh, as they're getting into the car, the Jonathan's ex-wife turns on the radio and there's kind of like you know some static and we hear Jonathan's voice through an EPV say I'm sorry to his son so his son recognizes his voice and you know is is happy with that and so we see that Sarah has survived her injuries but she's kind of confined to a wheelchair um and at the end it's kind of alluded to that the three demons are like terrorizing her now and as it cuts to the credits it's kind of a a tv static visual and you see jonathan and his wife anna are visible in that static which i thought was a pretty cool effect that's pretty much the movie and like i said i i think this movie is pretty good i wouldn't necessarily shit on it as much as the critics and you know kind of the general audiences have i i think it's a it's a pretty good watch it's a good kind of opening movie and maybe it's it would be a good movie to watch with say like poltergeist or something of that nature you know you start with this one and then go into poltergeist right after i think that's a great you know kind of double feature idea 
because I think from what I understand, Poltergeist kind of deals with some EPV and dealing with some of the TV static and kind of like communication with ghosts that way, if I understand correctly. I've never seen Poltergeist. It's definitely on my list. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll definitely have to kind of come back and see if Poltergeist had any influence on this movie. And speaking of ghosts, on one of the channels that uh, Jonathan's son is flipping through, you see that Casper, the friendly ghost, is playing in the background of the scene. And uh, it's kind of funny because there's the irony that these three demonic spirits that are you know, kind of following John around or not so friendly. Um, <laughs> or you could interpret that, you know, Jonathan's trying to receive a message from a friendly spirit, which is his wife. So I thought that that was kind of a cool, cool touch. So here are my final thoughts on White Noise. Do I think it's a good movie? In my opinion, yes. I feel like it's a pretty cool watch you know it's something easy to put on it's not super jarring by any means as far as a horror movie do I think it's scary on that note I I don't think it's a scary movie at all it does have some kind of minor jump scares that can get you but uh, you know I really don't think that it's that scary at all. I think the concept of EPV can be a little scary or daunting um, when you think about it, uh, but this movie I I don't think is scary at all. And I, I don't think it really helps either that it's a PG-13 movie. You know, sometimes with PG-13 movies and you know, if they're kind of classified as a horror film, you know, it doesn't really bode well for it, <laughs> in a sense. You know, I think one of the few PG-13 horror movies that do really well um, are the Insidious films, um, especially the first one. I think the first one did an awesome job, you know, really kind of capturing, like, the, the horror of Supernatural. So, you know, that might be another one that I would pair with this. Maybe do a, you know, a double feature with White Noise and Insidious. Or do a threefer with a White Noise, Insidious, and then Poltergeist. You know, I think that would be um, a good little movie marathon for you. That's just my suggestion. And, you know, actually, just in my... I took a quick little pause because I wanted to kind of look up other PG-13 horror movies, um, and I didn't realize that The Grudge was also a PG-13 horror movie. So, I mean, and I think in the case of White Noise, like, in this context, it's just not a scary movie to me. It might be unsettling or scary for other people. Um, but I, I think that it does a great job of some of the thrilling elements. And I think, again, Michael Keaton does a great job. Um, just 
some of the story wise I think could be better and again the whole kind of reveal at the end that it it was one of his construction workers that killed his wife in the beginning I think that was kind of a weird I don't think that needed to be there so thank you so much again listeners for joining me on this week's podcast about white noise Thank you so much for joining me this week, listeners. I hope you go check out White Noise and join me every Monday for a new episode on Super Scary. I look forward to seeing you in the next one. Bye-bye. Hey there, Super Scary listeners. Thank you so much for listening to the Super Scary Podcast this week. This podcast is edited and hosted by me, Josh. Our executive producers are myself and my wonderful husband, Frank. You can enjoy new episodes of Super Scary every Monday, wherever you enjoy your podcasts. We would greatly appreciate you giving us a review and subscribing on your favorite platform so you get notified when the new episodes drop. If you enjoy our content, please join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Super Scary Podcast. You can also email us at superscarypodcast at gmail.com if you have movie review suggestions for the upcoming seasons. See you next Monday for the new episode. Bye-bye!